Hey everyone, and welcome back to Creative Consumption. I'm Daniel Schwartzberg, host of the show. Thank you guys for coming to listen to the show. If it is your first time, then welcome. Thank you for coming to check out the show. And for those of you coming back, I really appreciate you sticking with it. I know it's been quite a long time since the last episode, so really it means a lot that you'd come back and give this one a listen. And I'm really excited that this is the one we're starting back up with because in this episode, I had the chance to speak with David Sparks. David is a creator in a huge variety of fields. Since 2007, David has been running his site, MaxSparky.com, where he writes about consumer technology, primarily from Apple, and other topics like intentional productivity, focus, mindfulness, and apps and tech tools that he enjoys using. David also produces his own screencast and is a prolific podcaster. He's a host on several shows on the Relay FM network, including the Automators podcast, where David and his co-host Rosemary Orchard talk about how to get more out of technology by automating it. The Focus podcast, where he and Mike Schmitz talk about intentionality and finding meaningful ways to be productive, both of which are topics David and I get into during our conversation. And finally, the podcast for which David is probably best known and which he's been making since 2009, the Mac Power Users Podcast, or MPU, where David talks with co-host Stephen Hackett about the broad world of Apple technology and how they use it to its fullest in their lives. Essentially, if you're an Apple fan, you're going to want to give this a listen if it's not already in your podcast queue. On top of all of that, David has also been a musician for most of his life, which you'll hear us talk about. He's a woodworker, a gardener, and as his listeners and followers probably know, has a deep love for and extensive knowledge of Star Wars and the world of Disney. Not to mention that for 30 years, David was doing all of those things I just mentioned while simultaneously being a lawyer and running his own practice. And it actually wasn't until very recently when David stepped away from practicing law to make his creative pursuits his full-time livelihood. As part of that, in the past two years, David's launched a new membership program through his website called Max Sparky Labs. And you can find a link for that in the show notes along with links to every other thing that's been mentioned. Suffice to say, David is a creator of creators, a multi-hyphenate of multi-hyphenates, and I was honestly a bit nervous, but very excited to talk with him. We dug into a whole bunch of interesting stuff, and it was a fascinating conversation that I'm excited to share with everybody. So without further ado, here is my chat with David Sparks. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I, I, uh, I've been looking forward to this. Oh, well, I really, it means a lot that you take the time. So thank you. Actually, my first question was inspired by a conversation you and Mike Schmitz had on the Focus podcast. He's your co-host on Focused. And it was a conversation you had last spring with Mark Champagne, uh, who's a host of his own podcast, Behind the Human, along with some others and the publisher of Personal Socrates. And... When I first started this podcast, one of the first questions that I wanted to pose to people, because I really wanted to get a sense of their perspective on themselves as a creator and those kind of things, is I would ask, how do you introduce yourself? And additionally, what titles do you lead with? And then in that conversation you had with with Mark Champagne, it really made me think very deeply about that question, about how in so many ways it is actually a limiting question about how somebody can define themselves, if that is sort of how it is framed as what titles you lead with and those kind of things. And the question you asked 
Mark because it's a question he uses on his show. And the question I wanted to ask you, if it's all right to start with, is who are you? Well, you know, it depends who's asking me, honestly. You know, <laughs> of I mean, course, yeah. if someone asks what I do and I don't know who they are and I don't want to like get into it, I'll just say right. I work with computers. You know, that's kind of like my answer. But it, uh, who I am really is an interested human. You know, I'm interested in the world. And, uh, I guess that's probably the answer to the question. Building off of that, so you are interested, obviously, in so many different things. A lot of them, like you said, focus around computers. And but in addition to that, you you are a musician. You're a you're a woodworker. You're a creator in a lot of elements. And so I was yeah. curious early on, what were inspirations in general that made you want to become a creator in any capacity in any form? I think it's just always been in my blood, Daniel. I mean, I just. I've always been making things. I, uh, when I was a kid, I had a lot of freedom and my parents, uh, kind of gave that to me. And I, I did all kinds of goofy things as a kid. And, you know, I, I'd play with electronics. I, you know, I loved music. You know, so my whole life, I, I'm always curious about, I guess, a form of self-expression in one way or another, but more than anything, I just love the act of creation, I think, more than the results of it. I, I like the process, and uh, that's just always been a part of me. Were there memories of specific things that you pulled onto, or like you said, was it just the general, like growing up in this environment where you were so supported by both your parents and those people around you that you always felt like you could become a creator? Yeah, I mean... The word never occurred to me as a kid. So just for a little perspective, I grew up in the, you know, the seventies and, and early eighties, I graduated high school in 1986. So, you know, the internet, the computers in general, largely didn't exist as I was growing up. So creation at that point was, you know, maybe, you know, taking two or three old bicycles and turning them into, you know, your own custom ride or whatever, you know? I mean, I never really thought of it as creation as such, but everything I did, uh, I just wanted to go to the next level. I mean, I got really into music as a kid and uh, I played um, piano and saxophone. And for some reason, I grew up in a household full of uh, country music, loving Lawrence Welk, listening people. And uh, I love my, I love my family. You know, that's great. But somehow when I was like eight, I uh, I heard a big band record and that led me down a rabbit hole that led me to like Miles Davis and Charlie Parker. So I was like really young and really into all these old dead guys. <laughs> but, you know, as soon as I started listening to it, I just said, okay, well, I want to start making it. So I started writing music, you know, uh, at a very young age. And so I'm just fortunate that, you know, that stuff has always been a curiosity to me. And uh, it's more attractive to me than honestly consumption is, you know, I mean, I mean, your podcast is about this topic, but I think that a lot of the the question is, you know, what blows your hair back? And for me, creation has always kind of taken the lead. I'd never heard you that you wrote music. I think that's so great. And it kind of, to me, that actually is such an interesting line into you were consuming. You were, you, I mean, in some ways you were listening to these things and getting inspired by them. And then that led you to make your own thing. And I think that's that is kind of that interplay that I always find is so interesting. And like you said, in some ways, it just comes down to definitions and sort of how we perceive the word consumption in itself, right? I think it has a very negative, maybe is strong, but it has a very weighted connotation nowadays. And that to consume something, it means that to me, it sometimes implies passivity, 
right? Where it's just the consuming it and doing nothing with it. Whereas the way you're describing it, it's consumption that led to inspiration. So yeah, I think that is the thing that I find so interesting. Yeah, I feel like consumption is absolutely food for creation. And, you know, making good choices about your consumption has a big impact on what you create. I had read in one of your articles, or maybe it was during a podcast, that you said you actually may have gone to school for music? No, I mean, I, I played in the school bands and then I got into several honor bands and, you know, a lot of jazz. In the state of California, we have this honor jazz band, which is really good kids from throughout the state. So I was exposed to some amazing musicians. And here's my music career in a nutshell. So I did that. A lot of people I played with went on become musicians or music teachers. I auditioned for the um, the Navy jazz band and oh, got wow. in, and I got also auditioned for Berkeley, which is a very fancy school. It's not not the Berkeley you're thinking about. It's a Berkeley in the Massachusetts. So I, I had options, but at the same time, I was going out to LA and playing like in demo tapes at that time. Um, rockabilly and um, there was there were some popular music that used saxophones so i would go out and and like do demo tapes and like make a few bucks to play on somebody's demo tape and i started to like do it for a living and i realized that this isn't really for me so i played in in a college jazz band and i still play but you know it's not as serious of an enterprise in my life as it once was still the, the fact that you keep it a part of your life i think is I don't know. I, th I think that is something that I really yeah. appreciate. I'm somebody, I also, I grew up doing a lot of musical theater and that's actually what I went to, to college for. One of the things that became so apparent to me after thinking it through and after kind of going back and forth between trying to just do one thing, whether it was just doing the music or just doing something else that really it's those other things that actually feed into each other. And it's those yeah. kind of incredible moments when you see an experience you had in a field that doesn't seem at all at first glance to be related. Your actual experience of the world is so informed by all that stuff. And so keeping it all in some way part of your life is really essential, I think, in, in so many ways. So I guess I, I think that's really great that you've been able to keep it a part of your life like that. It's funny if you'd like, because it's kind of related. I met one of my jazz heroes when I was doing that studio work. No way. And and he uh, told me, hey, if you, uh, he says, you're pretty good. You could probably make a living at this. He said, if you can imagine yourself doing anything but playing music, then you should absolutely go for it. But if you could imagine yourself doing anything other than this, you should do that. <laughs> and uh, that was a real, it was good advice. It was hard to hear as a kid, but it, it actually uh, led me down a good path. Yeah. And it's funny because that is a refrain that you hear in the world of theater and musical theater as well. I've had more than one uh, meal and conversation with somebody which circled around or got to the point where they said, it is wonderful you're doing this. If you think there's any other area that you have any remote interest in, do that instead. And it was it kind of, I didn't know how to take it, I think, at the time. I I. I don't think I took it as like them being mean. I think it's more that I interpreted it as them, in some ways, kind of trying to be both realistic and I think protective. I think those people who know how tricky and difficult it is to do work in those fields like music or like theater where having to make a living that way is really hard. You know, but I, in, in hindsight though, I, I could, I guess I could look at the opposite side of that. Is that really advice we should be giving people? Because I mean, if you <laughs> want to become go and take on Broadway or, you know, change the face of jazz. 
Why shouldn't we encourage people to do that? I mean, how many people are living their lives and just miserable because they didn't try? You know, I don't know. I feel like especially with somebody young, I mean, you know, give it five or 10 years and then see what happens. But uh, as I get older, I start to rethink some of these things, you know. What if someone told Lin-Manuel, oh, you know, you should just really go be a teacher or something, you know. I mean, how much would we have lost, you know. You have this background, both just kind of growing up in a general wanting to create. And I know you've written about on your site, you've talked about this before, about your first computers that you would go and I think you tell a story was it story about like Radio Shack or something along those yeah, lines about yeah. where yeah yeah when I was a kid they, you know I didn't have enough money for it computers were very expensive when they were new and Radio Shack which I don't even know how much they exist anymore but you know it used to be a little place you could buy fuses and things but they had their own line of computers and the guys that worked there were really nice so I would ride my bike there and I would program their computers and then I would save my programs and then they would use the programs because they didn't have any programs to sell the computers. So they would like give them to the customers uh, when they sold the computers. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it was a really kind of a fun way, but that, that, that was just another form of creation, right? I exactly. wrote games and did stuff. It's, it's all great. I mean, even like, cause I was a lawyer for almost 30 years and I was telling a lawyer friend, I said, the best lawyers you meet are the ones who are creative. They're the ones who can come up with new and interesting ways to look at problems you know, if you just follow a cookie cutter, you're never going to make it. I know that's one of the more recent transitions you've made is stopping your law practice and going full time with your work at Max Markey and with your podcast and those other kinds of work of, that you do online. The fact that you were a lawyer, but also had those elements of Mac power users and your website and other avenues for creation, do you find that motivated you in the law practice in ways maybe that if it weren't there, that would have been difficult to find that same kind of motivation. I mean, I think it was really scratching a different itch for me. Okay. Recently, I was talking to um, some kids. I did a presentation at a school and they wanted to, you know, some career advice. And I said, I don't think you should think so much about what you want to be. I think you should think about what really motivates you. And it, it took me a long time to figure out. But for me, the two things that really, really like make me want to jump out of bed is helping people and um the act of creation you know and i feel like being a lawyer i was definitely helping people but the act of creation it wasn't getting scratched quite enough and i think that's kind of in hindsight why i started doing that and frankly i just love the idea of sharing something i think that does make a lot of sense and the idea the core idea of helping somebody i i can imagine that as a lawyer that's a pretty direct line to be able to draw in some ways because yeah. you have that direct relationship with a client or with a group of people. You can see it through to a point where it gets resolved in a way that you're it's it's tangible in a way that I can imagine that sometimes the other kind of things you're doing weren't. But at the same time, and I'm sure you've thought about this, there are countless people I'm I know you have helped when it comes to the discussions you have on any of your podcasts, the things that you write about, the things that you create, like your screencast. I, mean, I can speak from personal experience that my keyboard maestro skills would be nowhere if I hadn't had a chance to watch those things you've made. So that idea of helping is such a broad idea. What's so great is that I think the work you do as a creator does fulfill that. And I'm, you know that, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like for a long time, I would think about it as the types of touches, like as a lawyer, mm -hmm. it's a big touch. Somebody comes to you, they've got this huge problem and you help them get out of it. 
And as uh, Max Sparky, it's little touches, you know, like helping somebody with a little bit of automation or just, you know, get their work done a little faster. So that was, that's always been kind of on the back of my mind, how I thought those, those pieces were getting handled. But in terms of creativity, I think that the Max Sparky stuff probably would not have happened if I hadn't been a lawyer, because I was looking to solve real world problems with technology and Um, being a professional gave me the opportunity to have real-world problems. Those who listen to David's podcasts or read his work also know that he has adopted a specific system of time management called time blocking, to which he credits a lot of his ability to organize his time in ways that let him create in all the places that he does. I wanted to ask David about how time blocking, or hyperscheduling as you'll hear David call it, applies to not just the work David creates for his livelihood, but also the areas of David's life where he creates just for fun or to give his brain a rest from how he creates for a living. I know something that you talk about a lot, and I was actually wondering if you could just give a brief explainer, is time blocking. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit, but I was wondering, would you mind just explaining kind of in your words what time blocking is and how that's a tool you like to use for your scheduling of things? Oh man, you just threw me a softball. Here we go. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the problem is that tasks are infinite and time is finite. So uh, what I mean by that is you have a task manager or even just a pad of paper you write things down on. You can just keep writing things down there forever. But the amount of hours you have in a day or a week, that's finite. There's only so many. No matter how many things you write down, you can't give yourself a 26-hour day. Um, so where the rubber meets the road on what you're going to accomplish in your life is in the time. It's not in the tasks. So uh, time blocking is a technique that I use. I didn't invent it. Lots of people have done it over the years. But it's a technique you use to to address that and say, okay, today I have six hours to work. What am I going to actually do? Instead of look at my task list with 100 things on it, I'm going to, you know, uh, create this one thing for two hours. I'm going to read this book for an hour and then I'm going to talk to Daniel for an hour on his podcast. And that is the time I have today. And those are the things that are going to get done. And it's just a, it really is a perception change, but when you do it, it forces you to be way more realistic about what you can do in the day. And when you have that cold water thrown on your face, then you're like, okay, well, if I really only have six hours, is that book important enough to take one of them? Well, maybe it's not. Maybe instead of reading the book, I should go have a lunch date with my daughter, or maybe I should go exercise, or maybe I should work on this other project. But you you realize that these hours are so precious. If you use a, what I call a hyper-scheduling or time blocking, if you use that technique and and say, okay, tomorrow I have six hours, what's good enough to make the cut? And then you write it down on your calendar and you stick to it, you're going to make progress on things that are important to you. Whereas the other way where you just kind of wake up, look at this long list and take a shot at it, that never works. Thank you for explaining it. I appreciate it. And it's been something that I personally have found very useful. I know many other people have as well. When it comes to the consumption side of when we're talking about like creation creation and consumption, creative consumption, right? There's so many things you make that 
I can imagine require research. I know you do have done podcasts on Mac power users that talk about specific applications and how they work and helping get people informed. You obviously your screencasts are a learning tool, a didactic tool for people to be able to kind of improve the things they know, to learn a new skill, learn a new tool, all those kind of things. On your end, for something like the consumption of things that inform you about making those sorts of things, about making your screencasts or researching an app's features or those kind of things, when it comes to scheduling or when it just comes to how you think about those things, do you consider that to be something that's just consumption or is that all wrapped up within your creation process? Uh, I'd say a little of both. I mean, sometimes I very intentionally want to do something and I will research it with the idea that I'm going to cover it. You know, on Mac Power Users, sometimes we pick topics two or three months in advance and I spend a lot of time very intentionally boning up on something before we do a show on it. But a lot of the other stuff just kind of grows out of a general sense of curiosity and learning about things. And then suddenly you realize, oh, you know what? I think I have something to share here. And then, you know, I'll share it. And it just depends on the scope of it, where it gets shared. But I don't really think about it, a lot of that stuff, as consumption. I just kind of feel like it's part of the process. I mean, if I'm watching something like especially tech related, usually it's because I want to do something with it. So I would almost in my head, at least categorize that as creative, like, okay, I'm learning about this, but I'm creating things that implement it as I, as I learn about it. Are there times when you wish you could turn that part of it off where you're watching something and the thought immediately occurs, oh, I could use it here. I could use this there. I could do this with it when maybe it was something you went in with the intention of just watching for fun. And then there's a voice that says, oh, how can I use this? Uh, I don't want to turn it off. I love it. I, yeah. I, I enjoy this stuff. I mean, it's really fun. In fact, I would almost argue the opposite. If I am watch something, anything remotely educational, and I feel like I'm not getting anything out of it, I think that'd almost be true for fiction for me too then I turn it off. I mean, if it's not if it's not engaging me, then why bother? Are there ever times then when you feel like burnt out or you feel like the creation has been so intense for a while that you want to step away from it? Or have you found a good way to approach it in a way that you're able to not have that feeling when it comes to, let's say, the end of a really intense screencast that you've been making or like one of those months-long research projects? First of all, let me just say, I do like to consume stuff. I watch TV and I goof off with my family, just like everybody else. Um, but in general, when I hit like a wall with creation in one scheme, I find that going to another type of creation is the solution. It's not going and like sitting from the TV. Like if I've been working on making Max Sparky content and I just feel a little wiped out by, by it all, going out and pulling weeds, playing my saxophone, going into the wood shop, going into some other place where usually it's working with my hands, but it's just some other form of engagement is, is the best way for me to relax. So it's not really turning off the creation bit so much as redirecting it. And that I find that ener more energizing than like sitting in front of the TV. Have you developed your own sort of intuitive sense of where that redirection goes towards? I mean, you said kind of manual work with your hands, those kinds of things. Is there just this sense in the back of your head when you reach that point where you feel like you may need to take a break, where you know what the next thing is? Or do you take some time to think about it? Like, is there 
is there a thought process into, I really think that now I should switch context to gardening or now it definitely feels like it's a time to go read instead of watch? It's a good question. I, I'd never really thought about that much, but what I've done is I've surrounded myself with toys, right? I've got a saxophone here next to my desk. I've got some beautiful plants in the backyard. I've got a little bit of a wood shop I've been working out of. And so when I need a break, I stand up and my body goes to one of them. And I honestly don't give it a lot of thought, but I, I do think there's like an element to it. Like when spring hits, I'm really into bonsai trees and I'm going to need to do more work with the trees in a couple months than I do most of the year. So I suspect I'll go out to the garden more than I go to the saxophone, you know, that kind of thing. So whatever is kind of on my, you know, whatever I just kind of want to do, I don't, it, the, the beauty of those things is none of those things are related to me earning a living. So I can take as little or as much time as I want doing them. I'm just curious when it cut like in the garden or anything, whether it's in the wood shop, are there times when you're doing that and then all of a sudden an idea strikes for back again for the Mac Sparky stuff where you can like kind of like one of those thinking through the idea in the shower moment sorts of things that you hear about where it's when you're not thinking about the idea, it's that's when the inspiration strikes. Absolutely. I think all humans have that experience. I mean, there's a reason for the meme about the shower, right? But the, uh, I, I think too often we don't give ourselves enough space to, um, to just like let our minds wander and drift. And when you try to do something so hard, I mean, I saw this in law where people would work on a problem uh, for days and weeks when they should have just stepped away from it and then come back. And then the solution would have come to them so much faster. You're echoing a lot. What I think I've heard a lot of people say too, which is knows that the grindstone is only effective to a certain point and it actually yeah. becomes counter effective and really becomes unproductive at, at a certain point. Are there any projects in the woodworking shop right now that you're excited about? Something you're working on that's been a long-term project or something like that? Uh, I am most excited about woodworking right now. And oh, wow. the, the, re the reason is because I did a bunch of it in the old age. My dad worked in the lumber industry, and that was a real connection that him and I had, you know, that we did this stuff together. And he passed away when I was pretty young, so that was always kind of a connection I have with him. And um, I was doing it a lot, and then as the Max Sparky thing grew. And honestly, even before that, as the kids, because I, I raised two kids, we, we went through, you know, a couple decades where our kids and our jobs were all the capacity we had. So the wood shop went away, you know, for like 20 years. And um, now that the kids are more or less grown and I now only have one job instead of two, I've realized, oh, this is something I could go back to. And um, where so much of the stuff I do as Max Sparky is so productivity and efficiency um, generated, the woodworking I particularly enjoy is handwork. Like I cut dovetails by hand and I do, you know, like I don't have a lot of machinery. I use chisels and saws and, um, you know, people call you a Neanderthal woodworker, you know. So I really like that. And I like the fact that it's something that is so intentional and is going to take time. Nobody could ever make a living making furniture that way, but I'm, I don't need to, so I don't care. So I, I'm really excited about kind of getting rolling with that. And I've been setting up shop for the last six months and I've got a whole list of things I want to make once I kind of get everything in place. Do you have favorite people that you either watch to 
like see, I don't know if it's a woodworking YouTube channel or if it's a, a blog or something, do you look for specific places to get inspired about what to create or do you kind of go off of your own gut inspiration about what you want to do? Oh, I'm super inspired by different movements like green and green arts and crafts and Japanese, um, um, some of the Japanese stuff too. And so my kind of design aesthetic is kind of me it's a com combination of those things but i've also enjoyed kind of as i've got back into it seeing that there's this whole community people of uh, on youtube and out in the world that are sharing information on how to do it kind of what i do for apple technology but for woodworking and it's fun to watch some of them and, and get ideas from them but honestly to tell you the truth this the stuff i want to make i i've not seen before it's uh uniquely me and i can't wait to share it at some point i mean most of the stuff i make as a woodworker are i give away you know it's like gifts to family and friends it's not it, it's it's just really uh, a pure act of um of creation just real fun you know no expectations that's sometimes the best kind honestly yeah before we get to the next section of the interview where David and I talk about the benefits and downsides of technology and how it can impact a person's intentionality and creativity, I want to make sure I let everyone know that David mentions an article that talks about depression in the context of TikTok and social media. In case anyone's listening who would find that to be a distressing topic and wants to skip it over, I've made sure to mark it in the show's chapter, so please feel free to go to the next section of the episode. I was interested to hear David talk on the topic, though, since it's something that I think a lot about as a technology user and, and fan who wants to get a better understanding of harnessing its good parts while still being mindful of its detriments. You mentioned the word intentional, and it's something that I think you, you talk a lot about, and it's come up throughout. It's something that I really value about the things you make, that you keep this idea of being intentional, and specifically, I think, in that area of technology, because it is so perilously easy to just to lose the thread of intentionality because of how many things are vying for our attention nowadays. Yeah. When at first did you realize that intentionality was something that was something that you found so essential to being able to do the things that you do, whether it's creating or even the law practice or any of that, how did intentionality, how did you arrive at that as the core idea? Uh, getting feedback from people who listen to the podcast and read the stuff I, I put publish and put out in the world, um, you quickly realize that a lot of people are struggling with this. And uh, for good reason. I mean, uh, Silicon Valley and the technology industry has failed us. I mean, when I was a kid writing my 10-speed radio shack, I mean, the idea of computers was this is going to make everything easier, better, and faster. You know, that's what computers are going to do for us. They're going to make it easier to get our work done. They're going to make the work look better. And they're going to, you know, make communication easier. And all that stuff, there was a promise that came with technology when I was a kid. And as I've I've grown up with it. I've seen that that got subverted. I mean, at some point, a bunch of people in the technology business have figured out that they can make a lot more money by selling advertising than they can helping us. And if you look at most of the products coming out of Silicon Valley, they're um, attention-grabbing distractions, and then they sell advertising. You know, uh, pretty much every social network is on this, and. And people really struggle with this because, 
you know, none of us are getting out of this alive. We we all have a limited amount of time on this planet. You know, I was talking about my dad earlier. He died 30 years ago. I was just thinking about the other day. Uh, you know, at some point, your time is up and you've got so much time on this planet to create something amazing or or make your dent. And I don't want your gravestone to say, well, here lies somebody who saw 10 million pictures on Instagram. I'd rather be here lies an amazing photographer, you know, that kind of thing. And, but the people in Silicon Valley are not taking that original mission serious at all. And said, they're just getting rich off selling advertising. So what's that mean for us? Well, we can just go along with it and let our computers and phones and everything help keep us from doing our best work, or we can subvert that. And I contend that technology still can be a savior. It it can still help you accomplish amazing things in your life, but you have to be super intentional about it because now there are all these apps and services out there trying to distract you, you know, everything trying to pull you away from doing your best work. And that's honestly the reason I stopped being a lawyer is because I feel like that is the thing I can help people with. And I think that's the most important problem that I can make an impact on. So that's what I'm doing all this for is I just want people to get the message and figure out how to do their best work, despite the fact that every bit of technology around them is trying to keep them from doing so. If there is one piece or maybe even a few pieces of advice you would give to people who are starting to come to that realization that they are giving a lot of their time to these things without actively thinking about it and sort of realizing that it's not how they want to spend their time. What advice would you give them to help with that? Well, I I think the first piece is you're going to need to use technology to defeat technology. So everybody's around computers and smartphones now. I don't think the answer is to throw all that stuff out the window and go back to a pad of paper. Although that is a way that people have defeated this. Uh, But I think for most of us, that's not an option. And you're losing the benefits of technology. So, um, you know, getting back to that word intentionality, what I would suggest you start with is just paying attention to what you're doing with your time. There's a bunch of great apps out there that let you track your time, but you could also, again, just write it down on a piece of paper. Um, I had a teacher once that said, every time the phone rings, ask yourself in the moment the phone rang, or was your mind on what you were actually doing or were you thinking about lunch? You know, And, um, and that was a great trigger because back when I got that advice, you got more phone calls than you do now. Would the modern equivalent be a, a text message sound yeah. or a, yeah, a, a tweet or something? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, find some way to keep yourself in check and just observe to begin with, you know, find out how much of a problem this is for you. I mean, if you're spending all your time going through Instagram or Facebook or any, you know, pick your social media platform, uh, you probably know that already. I mean, you you know it about yourself if you're doing it too much, right? But you talked earlier about how you get ideas when you're alone with your thoughts, but anymore, almost nobody's able to be alone with their thoughts. Like uh, the other day I was in the grocery store and just looking in line and like I was in line to buy groceries and every other person in the line was um, on their phone. Yeah, it's like you're sitting there waiting for three minutes. You can't just be with yourself for three minutes. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. Uh, so, so pay attention is the beginning. And then after that, start making an action plan. You know, you know, I had this conversation with my daughters and ultimately she just took all the social media apps off her phone. That was her way of trying to like reclaim and uh, that could work or, you know, uh, keeping a log. 
I think one of the best pieces of advice, if you love to go on Twitter and social media all the time, is start making a journal. Every time you're tempted to go, you know, post something asinine on Facebook, instead of write a true journal entry just for yourself that nobody else is going to read. And, and, you know, really dig in between that gray matter between your ears and see what you're thinking. Because when you put it down in your own journal, you you can be more honest, right? So, you know, find ways to divert that. And I have a whole podcast called Focus. So you can get the idea that uh, this is a big deal to me. But I think that that people can defeat this, but you just, you know, awareness is really the first step. As a teacher, I mean, you talked about seeing things in the grocery line. I, every day I'm seeing so many opportunities when, I don't know, it feels like there's a lost opportunity potentially for either connection or for other kinds of interaction. Yeah. It's like um, attention literacy. And Mm. when kids are, you know, young brains do not have the skills to fight it. I mean, more than anything, right? I mean, um, you know, there. I think, there is there any point in your life where you want to fit into the tribe more than when you're in junior high school and high school? Probably not, right? And so I feel like the, that's why what, what these companies are doing in some ways is just so terrible because kids are so susceptible to this stuff and, you know, they don't get it. I mean, there was a great study done in the Wall Street Journal um, recently where they went on TikTok and um, they put up some bot accounts where they pretended they were somebody, they had like a script of this person's feelings and what they were thinking about. And one of them, the theme for the person was sadness and depression. I don't know if I can get the the numbers exactly right, but I think it was like at the five minute mark of watching TikTok, the first depression video showed up. So they let that one play, you know, because you know, they were skipping you know, a TikTok. You can skip, but this hypothetical user let that one play. And then TikTok took that and said, oh, this person likes depression. And then by, I think it was like the 37 mark, 37 minute mark. It was like 90% of it was depression related TikToks. It just kept feeding this. And like this person who would be depressed is just going down this hole, right? It's not like these are videos that are engineered to help you pull out. They're, they're like, no, we want engagement because we can get the longer this person watches, the more ads we can feed them. They want to be depressed. All right, we're going to give them depression. And I'm just thinking for um, younger minds, how do they, how do they escape that? I don't know. I mean, they, they need, this seems to me essential. Um, that kids learn about this because I don't know what's going to happen if they don't. Maybe as a way of flipping it, what are some of the ways that you really do see the positive side of technology of those kind of things that you write about, that you teach about? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing, right? If you can do it without getting uh, sucked into a rabbit hole. I mean, I can speak into my computer and words appear on the screen. It types for me. If you like to do photography, the options available to you now because of computer technology, the kinds of pictures you can take and images you can create. If you want to learn how to be an artist, the things you can do, there's just so many options now that just didn't exist. I talked about I used to do music when I was a kid. I wrote music and recording equipment was thousands of dollars that I didn't have. Um, So I had a tape recorder. So I would play the piano and record myself onto a cassette tape. And then I had a second tape recorder and I would play the cassette tape and play along with the cassette tape and record that to the second one. And then I would just bounce it back and forth. Now a kid that wants interest in music has a Mac could get GarageBand for free and write an orchestral composition 
on a computer. I mean, th- there's so much. This guy, you know, there's no limit to what you can do with this stuff. You just have to find your interest and use it to pursue it. But, but you know, like I said, why wouldn't you spend the whole day writing music in GarageBand instead of scrolling on Instagram? Well, because Instagram's figured out a way to trigger all the chemicals in, the, in your brain to make it almost impossible to stop. Finally, David and I had a chance to chat about some of the things David consumes just because he enjoys it. For those of you who are familiar with David's work, they'll probably know about his passion for a certain space epic franchise. But I think it's especially interesting and fun to hear David talk about how, while his love for Star Wars remains, the overall genre of content he watches to be entertained has actually shifted in some surprising ways. One of the things that I like to do to wrap up is just ask, is there something that you consume that people would be surprised about? I know you talk about it a lot, but is there anything that sort of people wouldn't expect? So it's interesting, as I've got older, I've become way more picky about my um, kind of like, I and I want to call it brainless consumption, but, you know, stuff where I'm not looking to learn. Like everybody else, I grew up loving, you know, action movies and things blowing up and everything. I still am a big fan of Star Wars and that's a that's kind of a at a that's like at my root level programming because I was a little kid when the first one came out and it really you know that's just part of my makeup at this point but in general I have found that I'm not as into the things blowing up and people getting shot stuff as I huh. used to be right uh-huh. you know what I mean yeah, like yeah. Uh, a friend of mine said hey you should watch the new Jack Ryan thing and I read a couple of those oh yeah um, mm-hmm. those Clancy books years ago so I watch I'm like. Ah, this just doesn't it, it like I don't really want to pour this stuff into my brain. Uh, I've become a total softy, Daniel. The, the stuff <laughs> that I really like, right? You know, there was a great show on BBC called Doc Martin. And it's this doctor who uh, develops a uh, phobia when he sees blood, he passes out. And he's like a famous surgeon, really great surgeon. And he's got this problem. And they uh, so they send him down to somewhere on the i think in cornwall or somewhere down the south of england on the coast and a little village that's full of crazy people and he goes down there and he's cranky but every episode he saves somebody's life with some obscure diagnosis and (laughs) and while he's patching up their wounds he just might vomit or or fall or faint you know and it's just it's just a very obscure little show they they started running it like 20 years ago and like so many British shows, they would do a new season whenever they felt like it. So they did 10, 10, 10 seasons over yeah. the course of 20 or so years. They just finished the last one. Oh, and wow. I love going to see Doc Martin in his little village and just, you know, I don't know, it just made me happy. You yeah. Know? <laughs> no, that's great. I'd never heard of it. So Doc, you said it's BBC? Yeah, but I think you can get it in the US. I, I got it. Uh, I have an Acorn subscription. Oh, okay. So, and I got it for the sole purpose of watching that. And one other show I'm about to share with you. Yeah. It's called The Detectorist, which is another like just feel good little show. It's two guys who um, have their troubles in life, but on the weekends they go out with metal detectors and they're looking for treasure. But they're in England, so they, their idea is they're going to find like a Roman coin or something. You know, they want to find something. And they both have like all sorts of problems in their life. And they're they're good guys trying to work through it all, but they've got this 
detectorist thing and there's a bunch of wacky characters and that was three seasons and uh ended ended very satisfactorily and oh nice i don't know th- those shows are the kind of things i kind of like for downtime uh viewing and i realized that about myself in the last year or two it's kind of like the ted lasso effect you know how ted lasso was so popular and it's kind of the same thing right it's not there's not a whole lot of conflict it's generally good people just trying to make their way in the world. And uh, I find that as I get older, I kind of like that stuff. I, I don't know if that's an effect of my age. So I'm, I'm in the mid fifties. I'm not that old, but maybe it's just, you know, as you get older, you do kind of your taste change in that kind of stuff. So, so that's the kind of stuff I kind of like to watch for downtime. I don't expect to learn anything for it, but I do feel better about being a human usually at the end. Yeah, sure. Well, it's a very non-cynical take on things. It sounds like, which is, Honestly, refreshing given given the way things can be a lot of the time nowadays where I think we all, I don't know, it, it's, it seems to be a natural inclination to be cynical. Were these shows like, did somebody recommend them to you? How did you find them? You know, I just stumbled into them. Oh, that's great. You know, actually, you know, Doc Martin was recommended by a friend and the other one I stumbled into. But, you know, uh, on that point of cynicism, that is something you should fight, in my opinion. I think cynicism is a is a terrible trait, and it prevents a lot of people from making great things, you know, because it's so much easier to be cynical than to go out and try and change things or make your own thing. I think cynicism is a cop-out in general. I agree with you. And I also believe that mentors are so important and let their Sometimes it is something that we don't get the time to reflect and think about those people who have impacted our lives and really helped lead us on our path. And so are there mentors that you think have allowed you to to not be cynical in that way? Like whether it's to enjoy a Doc Martin or to do these kind of things or have your perspective on the positive way and intentional way you can do things. Who are some mentors that helped influence you and teach you that? I've been so fortunate. I, I could just go on forever. I mean, uh, I had music teachers as a kid, my parents. Um, several family friends. Um, to this day, I have mentors um, and people who in my life serve as a kind of a beacon for me to follow. Uh, I think we all have a lot of mentors if we just look around. I think that's a great note to end on. And I think that I hope that for those people who do have the time and opportunity to look around and see their mentors and thank them, because like you said, there are people who are all really lucky. I feel really lucky to have some as well. So David, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing all those thoughts. And I'll have to go check out Doc Martin and the and the Detectorists, both of them. I'll have to put them on my list. Yeah, they're fun. They're slow. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> not not a lot exciting happens, but you know what? It's good TV. <laughs> there you go. And that's all. Honestly, that can be the best kinds. So thank yeah. you again. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Thank you again to David for all of his time and for sharing his thoughts on all those topics. As you could probably hear, I was so wrapped up in the conversation, I forgot to ask David at the end to mention where everyone can find him. So you can find David's writing, the Max Sparky Labs membership program, and links to all of his other work at his website, maxsparky.com. You can also find his podcast there, as well as on the Relay FM network site or in any podcast app. If you're into geeky, cool tech talk or discussions about staying productive and intentional or just want to learn some cool tech tips and tricks, I highly recommend heading over to all of those places to check out David's work. You can also find a whole bunch of other links in the show notes, including ones to the TV shows David recommended at the end of our chat. 
I can say that I actually had a chance to watch the first couple episodes of Detectorists, the show David mentioned about the guys who decide to use metal detectors during their spare time, and it, it really is as fun and lovely as David says. That's it for now. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>